Well, good evening, everyone. Please turn in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 9, and is found on page 1163 of the Pew Bible. Mark chapter 9, we're in a section in Mark's Gospel where it is about seeing, seeing that Jesus is the Messiah, seeing that Jesus had to suffer and die and rise again, and then this evening, seeing the glory of Christ. So listen to God's word. Mark 9, we're going to read verses 1 to 13. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one any more but only Jesus with themselves. As they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it was written of him. Amen. May God bless us the reading of his word. Now, a childhood memory of mine is hiding behind a couch on a Saturday afternoon while my brother and sisters watched The Incredible Hulk starring Lou Ferrigno. I'm sure you're all familiar with The Incredible Hulk. Dr. Bruce Banner, a scientist, is trying to make a super soldier for the U.S. Army, but he himself is exposed to gamma radiation which transforms Dr. Banner into the Hulk for periods of time when his heart rate is over 200 beats per minute. But in our passage this evening, we read of another transformation, and it's not the result of gamma radiation, nor was it triggered by a heart rate reaching over 200. Instead, we get to see Jesus Christ in his full glory when he is transfigured before his disciples. Well, what are we to make of this event? Why is Jesus doing this? 
The transfiguration seems like a random event. Why this break in Mark's gospel to describe Jesus being transfigured? Why does Mark mention Jesus' clothes become dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them? Is this an advertisement break in Mark's gospel where Jesus is releasing or launching the latest laundry detergent? Of course not. The transfiguration is an important event because we see it mentioned in Matthew and Mark and Luke's gospel, and it points to the glory of Christ. But it also points to the necessity of suffering. And so I want you to consider that for you to suffer for Christ, see the glory of Christ, which is revealed to you in his word. So firstly, the glory of Christ is revealed for you to see that Jesus is no mere man. So we have a detailed account of the transfiguration. But what all is happening here? We read of Jesus going up this high mountain. And in Luke's gospel, we read that he went up this mountain to pray. Mountains are often significant places in the Bible, and this is no exception. Jesus takes with him three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. We're not told why these three, but they seem to be his closest disciples in that they're selected on other occasions. It was these three who went with Jesus upstairs to raise Jairus' daughter back to life. It was these three who went with Jesus to pray at the Garden of Gethsemane. And remember how they kept falling asleep. Well, they did the same here. Luke's gospel records that while Jesus prayed, the three disciples slept and they woke up to behold this amazing scene of the transfiguration. Some speculate as to why Jesus didn't take all of his disciples, that he did not want to take Judas to see his glory, otherwise he would not have betrayed Jesus. Well, that's speculation. Jesus here is transfigured before these three disciples. The other gospels tell us a little more. Luke said his face changed Matthew records that his face shone like the sun. And so Jesus' face was dazzling. In certain times of the year, when I drive home after doing the school drop-off, the sun is dazzling bright as it rises over the horizon. It's hard to see. That's what we are to imagine here. His face is dazzling bright. But not only his face... Mark records how his clothes are becoming shining bright. And so Jesus became this bright light, this amazing sight for, of Jesus' glory became evident to the disciples. And so the veil was removed, and the disciples got to see Jesus in all of his glory. And when you look at pictures of Jesus in historic paintings, Uh, He often has a halo around his head. He's always very prominent. He's tall. He's good-looking. There is a presence about him. The reality is far from this. Jesus was very ordinary. You could have walked by him on the street, not noticed. Remember how his own family didn't recognize that he was special. The disciples... They too struggled to understand who Jesus was. 
They asked the question after he calmed the storm, who is this that even the wind and the waves obeyed him? So it wasn't automatically obvious that Jesus was someone special. But surely this event of the transfiguration gave the disciples beyond a doubt that Jesus is no mere man. John's gospel doesn't mention the event of the transfiguration, but John did say in his introduction in John 1 verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so 50 years after this event, John still remembers seeing the glory of Christ. And so at the transfiguration, you have the glory of Christ being unveiled, his kingdom being momentarily revealed. Maybe you've seen a preview of a movie and you think, I really want to watch that. I can't wait for that film to come out. Well, here's a preview for the kingdom. It was for the disciples. And it was their rabbi, who they rightly identified as the Messiah, who would make it happen. He's not only a man. He is God. He is the king of kings, the king of this glorious kingdom. Well, secondly, notice you're to see that the revealing of Jesus' glory proves he fulfills the Old Testament. Why is the glory of Jesus this radiant light? We describe a variety of things as being glorious. Often it's to do with beauty or size or power or prestige. This week begins World Cup, and some of the goals that will be scored will be described as glorious. Well, why is light glorious? It seems random. Why doesn't Jesus change his size? Why doesn't he turn into a ferocious dragon or a lion? Why a dazzling light? Well, so much of Jesus' identity is linked to the Old Testament. He's constantly fulfilling imagery that's found in the Old Testament. God frequently revealed himself in the Old Testament in the form of light. So, for example, in the Exodus out of Egypt, God led the children of Israel by a a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. When Moses received the Ten Commandments, the glory of God came down on Mount Sinai in the form of a cloud. The Israelites, they saw it as a consuming fire. And when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was radiant. He was reflecting the light of God. Now we are on top of another mountain, and we see glory again. Is it Sinai again? Moses is present. There is a voice of God from a cloud. No, for a while Moses reflected God's glory, Jesus is God's glory. He produces the incredible glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. And so it's no wonder the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of the Son in regards to God the Father, he writes, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. So what Jesus is doing is transfiguring into this glorious light. And he's following a precedent that sat down in the Old Testament When God comes on earth, he comes in the form of a glorious light. And so for a moment, we get a glimpse 
of the divine nature of Jesus. No longer does his humanity hide it. Jesus is man, yes, but he is God. And there's more to this transfiguration than even Jesus unveiling his glory, for we see the appearance of Elijah and Moses, and they're talking to Jesus. Some suggest it's because both these men saw the glory of God before. While that's true, surely it is what these men stood for. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the law. Elijah was the first and foremost of the prophets. So with these two men, you have the sum of the law and the prophets, essentially the Old Testament. And what's the Old Testament about? Well, it's about the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus is that promised Messiah. Both these men were seen as precursors of the coming of the Messiah. In Deuteronomy 18.15, we read, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And so the Jews were waiting for a second Moses. In Malachi 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The Jews were waiting for Elijah to return. Well, Moses and Elijah appearing with Jesus Christ that demonstrates that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that the Old Testament was pointing to. And so Jesus, therefore, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Well, thirdly, notice it. You're to hear the voice that says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. We read of a cloud appearing and surrounding them. It's not unusual for clouds to form at the top of a mountain. Living in Ireland, you rarely get to see the tops of mountains. It's always a point of conversation in our home when you can see the top of the closest mountains. This cloud, however, is different. It comes down and overshadows them. And there is weight to this cloud. The disciples can feel it. This is the heaviness of God coming down upon the disciples. And from this cloud came a voice from heaven saying, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Peter never forgot this voice. Later, in his letter, 2 Peter 1, verse 16, we read, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Scrivener writes, receiving honor and glory is what the high priest does in his ordination. Also the language of you are my son is very much like an ordination. So the transfiguration seems to be a kind of ordination ceremony. Jesus is being declared high priest, the divine mediator between heaven and earth. And it is his blood that will bring peace with God. So this was a massive spectacle. And yet it was only for three men. Surely Jesus should have chosen Jerusalem for the transfiguration. Wouldn't it have been better for the divine glory of Jesus Christ to be revealed not only to Peter, James, and John, but to the political 
and religious leaders of that time to the crowds of people. Well, Jesus' way, God's way, is not man's way. These three men, as well as the other disciples, they would be the foundation of the church. And frequently we see Jesus doing this. He speaks parables to the crowds, but only to his disciples does he explain the parables. A number of his miracles were done in private, or he told the person being healed not to tell anyone. But always the disciples witnessed them. The disciples witnessed the glory of Jesus Christ being unveiled to confirm that he is God. He came as a man into this world, but here is where we gain a glimpse of who he really is, both God and man. Well, how do the disciples respond to this event, to this spectacle? Well, not in the way you would expect. Yes, they're frightened. Yes, they're speechless. But when they do speak up, and it's Peter, of course, he comes out with this bizarre request to build shelters for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. He begins, it's good that we are here. That's somewhat of an understatement. Instead, it's an honor to be there. It should, he should have said it's an amazing privilege. This is fantastic. Peter suggests building three shelters. But why three shelters? Uh, this word shelter is somewhat confusing to us. The New King James Version translates it as tabernacle, which is helpful. But it's not that Peter is thinking that we need to set up a tent for uh, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah to protect them from the elements. No, Peter is thinking of a tabernacle. He sees this as the beginning of the kingdom on earth, that Jesus' transfiguration would be a permanent arrangement. And as a result, they would need a permanent place to stay. And the disciples and all men would need protection from the glory of God. Remember, no one can see God and live. And so, like in the Old Testament, God dwelt with his people, but was concealed in the tabernacle for their own protection. Peter is thinking they needed something similar to protect them from the glory of God. And so it seems that God the Father, who speaks from the cloud, is rebuking the disciples by identifying Jesus as my son, whom I love. Listen to him. God the Father is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the one to be listened to. And that's evident for after God the Father speaks, Moses and Elijah are gone. They are only shadows. They are not the point. They are fulfilled in Jesus. And instead, the focus is on Jesus. And the disciples must listen to him. Peter is thinking that the kingdom has now come in its entirety. Instead, it is simply a glimpse. For Peter had not fully understood Jesus' mission on this earth. And he needed to listen to Jesus. And we'll consider in our next point what it is that Peter needed to understand. But what Peter is doing is often what we do. We have these preconceived ideas of how God will work out his plans and his purposes in our lives. But often he works them out in very different ways than we expect. And so you need to listen to Jesus. Recognize that his ways are not your ways. And so you must submit yourself to him. Well, fourthly, you're to notice the transfiguration 
is a reminder to you that suffering and glory are connected. Now Mark records that Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah, but it's in the Gospel of Luke that we find out what they're talking about. What a conversation it must have been to eavesdrop on. Luke says they are talking about his departure, what he is about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And the word departure is significant. It's the same word as Exodus. Here's another reference to the Old Testament where God rescued his people and led them out of Egypt, out of slavery. Well, Jesus' departure in Jerusalem, it would have the same effect. He would lead his people out of slavery. But this time is from their slavery of sin. That's how Jesus would save his people. He would save them from their sin, the sin that makes them separate from God, from being under his curse. Well, Jesus would remove that sin by dying on the cross. And so Jesus is a mediator between God and man. He would make it possible for man to be in relationship with God. But it came at a great cost. We've just heard how God the Father said, this is my beloved son. But on the cross, Jesus cries out to God the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ was separated from the love of the Father, instead felt his wrath as he bore the punishment for man's sin. And in the rest of Mark's gospel, Jesus would speak of his death and suffering to show them that the cross was necessary. And so the significance of the transfiguration was to help his disciples who were wavering in their belief to see that the cross and glory are linked Yes, it was a preview to the kingdom, but it would only come by way of the cross. Ferguson writes, this glorious moment was not an escape from the cross, but the preparation for it. Yes, Peter had boldly stated in his confession that Jesus is the Christ. But when Jesus then started teaching about his mission of suffering and death, Well, the disciples were taken aback. They were thinking, this isn't what we want to be involved with. And so the transfiguration was to encourage the disciples not to give up, but to continue following Christ. Not only are glory and cross linked in Jesus' life, but they would be linked in his disciples' lives. They were called to carry their cross, but they would also share in Christ's glory. And it's the transfiguration that makes sense of verse 1. This is a strange verse. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Well, it can't be referring to heaven for all the disciples did taste death before reaching heaven. None of them ascended into heaven. Nor can it be about Christ's return because... None of his disciples are alive today, and Christ hasn't yet returned. No, these words are fulfilled in the transfiguration. And Mark makes that very obvious when he writes, after six days. You're meant to see a link from this prophecy that Jesus gave, and Peter, James, and John seeing the kingdom of God come with power in this momentous event. And so they got to see who Jesus really is. 
they got a foretaste of the future glory when Jesus' glory would be evident to all. So the transfiguration helps them see that, yes, Jesus is glorious, but while on earth, he intentionally veils his glory, and his life would be one of suffering and ultimately death, and then resurrection, as prophesied in verse 9. Here we read that he charges them not to tell anyone until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. What they had just saw would be confusing, but soon they would understand. Well, the disciples are confused. They could not grasp that. This Verse 10, they asked themselves, what does rising from the dead mean? They get that Jesus is the Christ, that he's glorious. They just saw that. But they still had a problem with Jesus dying. Why would the Messiah die? What could that achieve? And they're nervous to ask Jesus, and so they ask him in a roundabout way when they ask, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? In verse 11. So it's not hard to join up the dots. They just saw Elijah. So the day of the Lord must be near. Why talk about death? Elijah is here and alive. We just saw him. And so they're thinking, we are on the cusp of something glorious, something great. Why is Jesus talking about suffering and death? Well, Jesus' response is to agree that Elijah does come first and restores all things, just as was prophesied by Malachi. But he then asks them the question, why is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. Jesus is saying that the Elijah that is to come was John the Baptist, and he has already come, and he had to suffer and die under King Herod, just like Elijah suffered under King Ahab. And since this happened to Elijah, to John, well, the Son of Man must also suffer. Keller writes, just as Elijah's coming was a herald of the Lord's coming, so Elijah's execution is a herald of the Lord's execution. Scrivener writes, there is a brilliance, there is a glory to Jesus Christ. To see him transfigured is to see the brightness of the light of the world. But understand this, this light shines from a furnace of suffering love. This is the glory of Christ. And it is this glory that you need to see. Even in Christ's suffering, Jesus is not a martyr. He's not weak. He's not small. No, he is your glorious God. And this transfiguration wasn't a party trick of Jesus. No, it was to convince his disciples and to convince you that Jesus is God, but also help you see that suffering and the cross is part of Jesus' mission to rescue you. That's why you are to trust him. Well, finally, notice you encounter Jesus' glory in his word, which gives you hope in your suffering. Maybe you're thinking, well, that's great for the disciples. Yes, they suffered, but they got to see the transfiguration. We are suffering, but we have not experienced this glorious unveiling of God's kingdom. Well, while we may not experience that glory now, we will experience it for all eternity. 
as followers of Christ, you will share in his glory. Philippians 3, Paul tells us, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. We will see Christ's glorious body, just like the disciples, when we ourselves will be made glorious, when we will be living in glory. But what do we do until then? Maybe you're thinking a glimpse of the glory of Christ would really strengthen my faith right now. I need a mountaintop experience just like what Peter, James, and John experienced. Maybe you're suffering, suffering right now. You're going through a hard time. But you must realize that in your day-to-day suffering, you do get glimpses of glory. But it comes from an unexpected place. You behold his glory in his word. Here is where your hearts are strengthened. Peter, who experienced the transfiguration, he also writes that what we have in Scripture is clear and powerful as any word we might hear from heaven. And in that quote from 2 Peter 1, it continues to say, and I'll read the whole thing again, he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Ferguson writes, if we would see the glory of Jesus Christ now, we must read scripture just as eagerly as Peter would have lingered on the mountaintop. The same voice speaks in both places. The same testimony is given. Jesus is God's son. Listen to him. And so you have the word. Search the scriptures to encounter the glory of God. The word is a light that shines in your darkness. Often in our difficulty and in our suffering, our response is not to read God's word. It's not to go to church. It's to cut ourselves off from the light. But what we are doing is only causing more damage to our spiritual lives. I remember at university, some students who had lost all sense of routine, they stayed up all night, they were cramming to get assignments done, they were having to fulfill all their social engagements. Well, during the day, they skipped classes and they slept all day. And it affected them. They looked like creatures from the night of the living dead. It was a destructive behavior to them. We do the same spiritually when we cut ourselves off from the light of Christ. When we don't take the opportunity to see the glory of Christ from his word, it's a destructive behavior. Your suffering will overcome you. You will not see the hope that you have in Christ. Instead, in your suffering, go to God's word. There you see Christ. There you see his light. And so there you find encouragement and strength. Remember Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi. They were suffering much. But what do they do in response? 
They sang praises to God. They did not despair, for they saw the glory of Christ even in that darkest prison cell. So remember, for you to suffer for Christ, you must see the glory of Christ, which he has revealed to you in his word, to strengthen and to encourage you. As I said at the start, this section of Mark's gospel is all about seeing. You are to see that Jesus is the Christ. You are to see that Jesus would have to suffer and die and rise again. And you are to see that Jesus is a glorious God. I'm reading to Liam a children's version of The Pilgrim's Progress. And it's this beautifully illustrated book. And I often see in the distance, along the path, the glory of the celestial city where the king lives and his pilgrims guiding light to keep him going, to encourage him. And so remember, Christ is your guiding light. He is with you. And so for you to keep going in your sufferings for Christ, you must see him in his glory. And this you do when you see him in his word. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for this unveiling of Christ's glory. And we thank you that we see this in your word. And so, Lord, give us faith to do that. We do pray that you would enable us. Um, forgive us, Lord, when in times of discouragement, in times of suffering, and when we are hesitant and slow to go to your word, to come to church, to be with your people. Instead, Lord, that we would see Christ in your word, and that we would behold his glory and that we would be strengthened and encouraged by him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please turn in your psalm book to Psalm 119R. Psalm 119R, this psalm speaks of the light that is revealed to us from God's word. And as a result, we are given wisdom. And in the fourth stanza, we read, of a prayer upon your servant shine your face teach me to know your statues way the tears and streams flow from my eyes for they your law do not obey this prayer here we read of suffering in the psalmist's life and he asks that god's face would shine upon him and he does so through his word so let's pray this prayer now as we sing this psalm psalm 119 r let's stand